Hello, and welcome to another episode of Roots and Hoots, a podcast project produced by the Legacy of Hope Foundation. Since 2020, we have been gathering, laughing, learning hard truths, and sharing in community conversations with Indigenous peoples across Turtle Island. Each episode, we learn something new, and we're excited to be sharing this journey with you. Roots and Hoots is about connecting with and celebrating Indigenous peoples' contributions to their fields of study, work, and cultures. We also speak with allies who share how they are furthering the work of reconciliation in Canada. To learn more about the Legacy of Hope Foundation and the work that we do, please visit legacyofhope.ca. Peter Tinuar Freiken joins host Gordon Spence in episode 47 of Roots and Hoots. Their conversation spans decades of Peter's life, pivotal moments in Inuit, Indigenous, and Canadian history. From tales of his time as a young boy growing up in Chesterfield Inlet to being sent to Ottawa as part of an education pilot program, Peter shares about his experience leaving his home community and what the journey back home was like. He shares about his dream of becoming a pilot and how a fork in the road led to him becoming the first Inuk MP instead. Peter shares about his work in Parliament, including the pivotal time where he saw the inclusion of Section 35 into the Canadian Constitution. Today, Peter is working on his second book while supporting communities across Ontario with native land claims. Peter shares anecdotes and important stories from a life well lived. And rest assured, this only scratches the surface. Hello and welcome to this podcast of Indigenous Roots and Hoots. I'm Gordon Spence, your host, and uh, today my guest is Peter Itinua Freuken from Rankin Inlet, now living in Ontario. Uh, maybe, Peter, we can start by... Just talking a bit about your background, where you're from, and uh, a bit about your family. I am uh, originally from the far north, now Nunavut, born in a place called uh, Chesterfield Inlet, Igluligartuk, which was uh, basically the hub of the key. Then what was then called the Kiwait and now called the Kivadluk. It's just north of Rankin Inlet. And uh, born there in 1950 and uh, caught the tail end of the dog team era and people still yeah. living in igloos. And, and uh, so uh, that's where I grew up for the first seven years of my life. And then uh, we moved to Rankin Inlet uh, when my dad uh, went from being a special constable with the RCMP to working in the mine because they paid so much better. And... That mine was interesting in Rankin in that uh, in above itself as a as a story. What kind of mine was it? Oh, nickel mine. Nickel mine. It was in a Rankin Inlet nickel mine. It was called, and literally the Inuit drove there by a dog team, and overnight were dressed in mining clothes and uh, started to work underground or above ground. And because there was a progressive kind of manager named Andy Easton who, uh, against all advice of governments and uh, and uh, mining companies, uh, wanted to hire Inuit and taught them to be drillers, explosive people, heavy equipment operators, carpenters. And now there's a gold mine near uh, Rankin about 14 kilometers away. And Many people are employed there. How big is uh, Rankin Inlet? How many people live there? Well, at the time, uh, it, it started from zero. Uh, it was not, uh, it was uh, nomadically in the traditional historical days, people would go there to fish uh, during uh, certain times of the year. Uh, but then move away uh, other times of the year. And so you can see the old saputid or the fishing weirs where, uh, uh, you know, stones are placed in a in a river and uh, fish go in and they can't get out and then the Inuit would catch them with kakivite or uh, the fish spear. Right. And yeah. so uh, nobody lived there permanently prior to the mine. And then uh, so from zero to... Uh, right now, I think there's about uh, 3,500 people. Uh, that's where the famous Jordan Tutu comes from, the NHL right. player. Yes. I coached him, by the way, when he when he, he was in Pee Wee. Awesome player. What was he like? He was a good player. Uh, his father was a better player. Yeah, I meant Barney. Barney yeah. Tutu, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he played a couple of games with the Edmonton Oilers and decided he didn't want to stay down south. So oh, really? He, uh, he refused... Uh, 
and he scored some goals and put some guys over the boards. Yeah, Barney was five foot six every which way you looked, and strong <laughs> as a bull, you know, and shifty and fat. But Jordan uh, and his late brother Terence were extremely hardworking. Uh, uh, young students uh, on the ice, and uh, I think they were, in fact, I, I coached them for a year, mm -hmm. um, and uh, there were there were one or two other kids who were maybe were a little more talented, but no, Jordan and Terrence never smiled on the ice. They worked just as hard as they could, and, yeah. and Jordan worked his way into the NHL. Yeah, yeah. Yes. I've been trying to get him on this podcast for some time, so it's just, <laughs> yeah. it'd be really interesting to talk to him. Um, you and a few other young Inuit boys were sent south to attend school at an early age. Uh, talk a little bit about that. What uh, what was the purpose okay, behind all the, that? The, the the reason behind that is both complex and simple. Uh, in 1960, uh, the Deethan Baker government repealed parts of the Dominion Act of Canada, which prohibited Inuit and other Aboriginals or Indigenous people from being able to participate in politics in Canada. These people, the Inuit and uh, other, did not have the right to vote, did not have the right to, uh, to participate in the, in, the, in the political arena. So when that was removed in 1960, it dominoed a few other policies that the federal government had to uh, act on. One of which was, well, we've got all these newly minted Canadians in the far north. Mm -hmm. How are we going to educate them? And and are they educatable? Yeah. If I can use coin a term like that. Yeah. Okay. They really did not know whether Inuit had the uh, capacity or the capability or the ability to be educated in the same way as Southern uh, Canadians. And so... <clears throat> So this was before you had schools and communities in the but, north, right? Well, they had schools. They had some schools, but they were minimally constructed, uh, sometimes run by uh, either an Anglican or a Roman Catholic uh, church. And, uh, Chesterfield Inlet had a federal day school, but which most of the teachers were nuns. Yeah. Uh, Rankin Inlet had a federal day school. Uh, this was an era... 1960, 61, etc. When some kids started school at 14 years old without a word of English to their uh, vocabulary, so this was a very strange situation. But the question for the federal government at the time, after having found out that they had to develop an overall policy for educating Inuit, uh, they decided to run a bit of an experiment. Some people call it a social experiment. And they sent a man named Gordon Devitt up throughout the north doing IQ tests at different uh, schools, right from Inuvik right across to uh, northern Quebec. And so uh, what happened was they selected three boys uh, to go down south, live with an urban middle-class family, and attend a public uh, school, unheard of. Uh, prior to that time, mm. uh, to see if uh, these three boys, they didn't necessarily have to be boys, but it just happened that way. Yeah. They selected the three boys, and um, uh, the boys went to Ottawa and lived with um, middle-class families in mm. in the suburban area of uh, West Ottawa and uh, attended uh, public schools, J.H. Putnam. Uh, to be precise, and to see if they could compete. Uh, they uh, All expectations by the bureaucracy of the day was that they would fail miserably. And uh, then they would they would base their developing a education policy for the North on that, mm -hmm. or at least partly on that. The boys succeeded pretty well. And uh, as Zebedee Nungnak, one of the boys, he likes to say, you know, Khadlunak is the word for white people. Yeah. Uh, we out Khadlunarn the Khadlunarn. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so based on that, they decided that eventually schools uh, would have to be built up north. But they also 
they also started to bring the brighter of uh, kids up north, people of an equitable age to grade ratio with students in the south and brought many of them to Ottawa, to Winnipeg, and and uh, put them in homes following that uh, experiment. Right. Yeah. At the, and at the same time, you know, developing a policy that would enable schools to be built in the north with uh, more fervor than uh, previously. What? Uh, how long were you down south? I was in uh, Ottawa for two years. Uh, Eric Tugnop was in Ottawa for two years. Mm -hmm. Zebedi was in Ottawa for six years. Six years. Yeah. Yes. And uh, What grade did you start at when you came to Ottawa? What pardon? grade? Oh, uh, we started at six and then uh, uh, seven. Uh, and uh, uh, we were a bit behind because of uh, up north, that's yeah. it's, it was the way it was. But we weren't so far behind that. We weren't in the same age groups uh, uh, as our peers in the schools. We participated in hockey, baseball, judo, yeah. took piano and guitar lessons. And, wow. and so uh, a, lot, a, a real middle-class upbringing for a while. Yeah, yeah. And as well... Our foster parents, as we as they were called, they were middle class, so they taught you to eat with, uh, take meals with etiquette. You know, I mean, right. yeah. Previously, we had eaten with our fingers yeah. and a knife on the floor. And that was basically <laughs> it. <laughs> so, how did you find like living with uh, white people? Uh... Well, a lot of words can describe. It was lonesome. It was square. Uh, it was uh, orderly, disciplined in a way that we have not known before. Yeah, curfews, um, serious homework, yeah. uh, English all the time. Uh, that, that's one of the things too. We weren't allowed to speak our own our own language, Eskimo, or you know, yeah. Uh, in the presence of other people. Yeah, and so we wouldn't be by ourselves, but we were able to write. At this age, uh, all three of us were able to write in syllabics, yeah. which is uh, one of the two forms of writing Inuktitut uh, language. And mm -hmm. so we were able to write uh, letters to our parents and they were able to write to us, yeah. uh, but which was far, far between, you know, you, yeah. you'd receive a letter maybe twice a year. Right, yeah. And yeah. Uh, there were no telephones, there were no radios, there were no... Yeah. Uh, there's no communication of any kind whatsoever. And yeah. I remember my mother was telling Zebedee and myself one time that she was in hospital in Churchill and uh, CBC went around taping, recording people in the hospitals mm -hmm. to say something to their families up north through CBC radio. Right. And uh, she didn't know where I was, where in the south I was. It was a nebulous area for her. Mm -hmm. And uh, so she sent a message to me through radio. I've never heard it, yeah. but she did. <laughs> she did say that. Okay. But. Ayaya songs are about our histories. Ayaya is an Inuit-owned firm that tells our stories in many languages across Canada. Ayaya are experts in publishing children's books, usually in syllabics, and they do large multi-language projects like the reports of the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls Commission. If you need help getting your stories into classrooms or homes in Cree, Inuktitut, or other Indigenous languages, check them out at ayaya.ca. That's A-Y-A-Y-A dot C-A. So uh, it was uh, it was it was difficult, but also when you're a kid, you're malleable, you're resilient, mm -hmm. you adapt very quickly. Right. And yeah. uh, so we started speaking English in the way the other kids did in the public school in Ottawa. Prior to that, did you not speak English when you were? Uh, we did in yeah. school a bit, yeah. And, and um, often uh, we were the interpreters. Uh, because nobody else spoke English. Right. So uh, we'd interpret for adult people, you know, white, yeah. whites and yeah, yeah. Uh, Inuit. How did you find uh, mingling with the uh, 
with the non-Indigenous kids in the schools that you attended to? What was that like? It was, I had to be pushed into this first classroom. I yeah. was so scared. The foster parent had to literally, physically push me into the classroom. Yeah. And of course, the kids in the classroom had been forewarned by the teacher and by the principal. Yeah. We were having two Eskimo kids come into the classroom, be nice, etc. As it turned out, we made friends the Better first way. recess. Yeah, yeah. You know, it, it was easy. Kids are far less um, uh, prejudiced, discriminatory yeah. than right. others, unless yeah. they've learned it from their parents. Right. And uh, so naturally, we just made friends. They were curious about us. We were curious about them. Mm -hmm. Did, uh, uh, you mentioned that your mother, when she was in a hospital, mm -hmm. um, when doing the recording on CBC, she didn't know where you were. Here, did, did the government uh, did the government ask you, uh, your parents' permission, or did they just no? Did you just no. Did this on my, your own? My, uh, my mother was away in tuberculosis uh, sanatorium from 1953 on for a number of years, and uh, so she was on and off again in Rankin Inlet. And my father heard from the priest, who had heard it from a teacher, who had heard it from the government agent wow. that uh, I and uh, Eric Tegognap were going to be sent to Ottawa. And there was, there was no consent was asked, no, uh, mm -hmm. no form was ever signed, wow. and no, uh, nothing of any, with any kind of formality was ever discussed uh, yeah. with our parents about us. It was just decided and that was that. Yeah. In, in that area, the area that we grew up in, mm -hmm. People of European descent had a priori, a priori superiority, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, a perfunctory powerfulness that uh, gave them power over Inuit with no questions asked. Right, and so say uh, uh, they just did it. Yeah, how has this like experiment? Uh, how has it affected you uh, over uh, the years? As you may know, all three of us in some way succeeded. Somebody became president of Makivik Corporation. Uh, Eric Tegognaf became uh, president of the Inuit Tapaliksit of Canada, now Inuit Tapalik Canada. Mm -hmm. I became a member of parliament for a couple of years. But uh, I think subconsciously, uh, uh, one of the ways it affected us in the early years was going back up north and, and uh, reverse racism, which is ugly. Yeah. And far more hurtful than What that. do you mean by that? Okay, your own people being racist towards you because they, they're uh, accusing you of being white. Right, yeah. So you're white now, eh? Okay. You can't do anything. You yeah. can't, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And so that was, uh, that was, effect, that affected us, all three of us, uh, uh, for a while. Uh, it made it very difficult. Uh, being away from our families, you know, if we were children, so if some adult down in Ottawa somewhere decided to give us a whack on the head, and, and which we I got a few times, uh, or said some demeaning sort of thing, you couldn't run to your father, you couldn't run to your uncle or aunt or mother or yeah. friends, and you had nobody to run to except each other. So psychologically, I think that affected us uh, later in life. Yeah. And... Uh, uh, all three of all three of us have had our ups and downs, and uh, and I think to this day it's uh, the we were we uh, I at least and and have been psychologically examined uh, recently in the last year or two mm -hmm. by a psych, uh, psychologist in, in as part of the case on uh, on the experimental Eskimos mm -hmm. and. Uh, I don't know what his assessment is, yeah. uh, but I think there's, uh, I think there, there was damage, yeah. uh, whether we knew it or not. I attended um, school in the South as well, uh, partly with residential schools and, uh, and partly living with uh, non-Indigenous families. Oh. And, uh, but, and this carried on for a number of years, starting probably from, well, I went for a number of years uh, but I found that uh, it was harder for me to stay home, like on the reserve when I came home, you know. Yeah. And the, the the longer I stayed away, 
the more difficult it became for me to when I came home to stay home. So, yeah. you know, that kind of affected me <clears throat> that way, you know, that uh, I was not able to, to this day, I, you know, well, I, I can't, don't think I could live on the reserves. Like, uh, the disparities are immense. Uh, culturally, you know, uh, you you become acculturated, you know, to your new environment, and then you go home, and you find, I'm not going to use the word primitive, but you find people yeah. unknowledgeable about uh, the rest of the world. A little behind, and, yeah. And uh, when you tell them uh, that you can swim a mile now, mm -hmm. for instance, because you've been going to swimming school, yeah. And uh, and a mile is nothing, you know, if if you know how to swim, and they won't believe you. Yeah, uh, that's just that's just one example. Yeah, yeah. And and uh, and uh, economic and financial disparities were immense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. In Ottawa, uh, we ate three square meals a day. It was just there. There was no question about it. Mm -hmm. uh, you had running water, electricity. These things that weren't readily available uh, back home, mm -hmm. uh, clean clothes, yeah. uh, an orderly life. So the disparities are immense, and and it and it it does get hard to go back home, especially compounded by the fact that your own people are ridiculing you for mm -hmm. becoming something else. Yeah, you fit in less. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah. and that, that that particular part was what affected me the most. Yeah. I think. Yeah. 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 That hurt. Yeah. I believe you were the first Inuk elected to Parliament, House of Commons, around 1979. Can I talk a bit about that? Yes, I, I was, I had attended Carleton University uh, for two or three years and and also teaching nighttime at Ottawa University, Inuk Titut and yeah. Sociology of the North. And during the summers, I was uh, attending flying school because I, I've, I'd always wanted to become a pilot. A you know, pilot, okay. Yeah. Because I thought bush pilots were dashing yeah. people, you know, <laughs> flying their Norsemans and yeah. single otters and so on. So I did become a pilot. Oh. I went up to Yellowknife to uh, finish out my commercial pilot's license. And I got a call from uh, Wally Firth, who was, uh, he was a, Aboriginal Indigenous uh, NDP member of Parliament from uh, Inuvik, mm -hmm. Fort McPherson, that area, yeah. and uh, uh, it's related to the first sisters who were cross-country skiers who competed in the Olympics. I mm -hmm. think. Yeah. But anyway, I got a call from Wally Firth, and he said, "Peter, there's an election coming up, and I'd like we'd like you to run for us." Prior to this, I, one of my double majors at university had been political science, mm -hmm. and the other was sociology, but I had never voted. I had never willingly participated in, in politics. Yeah. And, I, and I said, I, why? I'm, I'm trying to become a pilot, you know, and, yeah. and that's what I wanted to do. He said, well, you know, we need you to, we want you to run. And I said, I wouldn't get elected, you know, I'm too, too young, I'm 28 or something like that. Yeah. And uh, people want somebody who's established, like Taga Curley or James Alvarlook or mm -hmm. Abe Ukpik or, you know, somebody, somebody like that. And he said, well, you know, they're already spoken for by the conservatives and the uh, liberals, you know, yeah. and uh, we want you to run for the NDP. I, I hardly knew what the NDP was. <laughs> and, and, and then I said, no, I just want want to continue with my, I was training with Arnie Schrader, who was a, a famous uh, uh, Arctic ice pilot. Okay. Yeah, one of those guys. And, but he said, look, just take three months off to campaign, and uh, then you can go back to your pilot training. I said, okay. So they gave me a budget of $8,000, mm -hmm. and um, the guy who became premier of the Yukon I'd forgotten his name, was uh, campaign manager, and Dennis Patterson was the uh, now senator for Nunavut, right. was uh, my official agent. Really? Yeah, and I, I they flew me to Iqaluit, Frobisher Bay then, yeah. Iqaluit, and we had a little NDP association meeting, 
I think about 10 people showed up. Yeah. And they nominated me as the uh, candidate. Yeah. And then that was when I realized I was terrible at public speaking. I didn't know what to say. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, I blurred my speech and and uh, and I got nominated. And, and when the election came, 1979, 79, yeah. uh, the, the first poll came in and I had something like two votes and the other two had something like, you know, 50 plus votes or whatever. And so I was at a friend's house, John Patek, my cousin, and uh, we were listening to the radio and drinking, uh, you know, uh, some hooch or whatever it was, <laughs> <laughs> and laughing at, uh, oh, uh, well, I told him we're going to lose. Yeah. And then halfway through the night, we started to catch up. Yeah. And then the last polls came in from the do line sites, you know, distant early warning uh, uh, department of uh, transport sites that yeah, yeah. the federal government runs. And the last poll came in, and uh, I won by seventy six votes. That was that was it. I, that was the election night. That was the election night. Yeah. And my heart did a lurch, and and the phone rang. And uh, there was a, a, apparently there was somebody in town had been conscripted or commissioned or something to write a story if I happened to win, yeah, which was un not expected, yeah. But that lady uh, found out where I was where I was at and phoned John Puttick's house, and uh, he, he he was in one of those townhouses where the living room is upstairs and the bedrooms are downstairs. Yeah, I remember those. Yeah. And John had a green thumb. He had a whole bunch of potted plants of grass. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, holy moly, the uh, the reporter is coming here. Yeah. So we both started running downstairs with our arms full of uh, potted plants <laughs> to hide them. <laughs> and then she came in and uh, I did my first interview then. Yeah. I didn't know what to think. I was in shock. Yeah. And, uh, it, was, it was this like, wow, this is the turning point of your life, yeah. you know. Who was the uh, leader of the NDP at the time? Ed Broadbent. He was? Yes. Oh, okay. Ed Broadbent, and uh, the Prime Minister elected uh, elect uh, was uh, Joe uh, Clark uh, uh, in a minority government. Yeah. And then some nine or ten months later, Bob Ray, who was in the NDP caucus, uh, uh, made a motion, non-confidence motion, which both the Liberals and the NDP voted for, and Joe Clark's government fell. Mm -hmm. And then the following election, uh, lucky, lucky or not, I got elected again. Yeah. And uh, the elder Trudeau, Pierre Trudeau, uh, was elected prime minister. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You would uh, cross the floor from NDP to mm -hmm. Liberal. During that time, I guess your second term, what was the reason for that? In my first maiden speech in 1979, I, I described a concept called Nunavut, and, uh, which was just forming in the minds of the Inuit intellectuals, if you will, uh, Curly, um, and which included uh, all of the regions that now have land, uh, comprehensive claims agreements. And uh, at, at one time, the concept of Nunavut was to be inclusive of all these uh, regions. And then uh, the first to uh, fall off was Sam Raddy and COPE, mm -hmm. Committee for the Original People's Entitlement, now right. uh, called the IDIRG or whatever. the Inuvialuit. Inuvialuit yeah. uh, region. Uh, they fell off, and then uh, uh, Labrador fell off, and then uh, Quebec fell off, so Nunavut became what it is now today. Uh, and uh, at the time I, I mentioned that I, it was, we were still discussing, you know, we were using words like secede, secession, uh, and, uh, or do we enter the Confederation of Canada? Uh, uh, do we what what do we see it as? Mm -hmm. But I did uh, I mentioned the concept uh, 
in in uh, in my maiden speech. I never got a lot of support from uh, the NDP about it. In fact, Ed Broadbent laughed at me outright when I uh, mentioned it, mm-hmm. uh, as if it would never happen. It was yeah. such a far-fetched idea. Right. And then the um, uh, and then the uh, uh, there was the constitutional work as well, Section Thirty-Five, as you may know, yeah. which is outside of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. Mm-hmm. And the reason it's outside of that is so that the provincial governments cannot use the with, notwithstanding clause against it. Mm-hmm. I made a motion in uh, in uh, the Joint House of Commons and Senate Committee on the Constitutions, uh, uh, chaired by Sir Joyal mm-hmm. and uh, John Crachen. I'm not dropping names here. These are the people around with I work. John Crachen was then Solicitor General. And when that section was first proposed, uh, John Creechin and I had an argument about who should uh, move it. He wanted the because whoever moved it was making a little bit of history, right. and and uh, uh, and there were four of us who stood around: <clears throat> John Creechin, Harry Daniels, the Métis leader. Uh, so then Robinson, another NDP member, and myself. Yeah, I remember that guy. Yeah, and and we had an argument about two items. One was, do we include Métis in that section? Right. Because at the time, <clears throat> we knew who uh, who the um, Indians, as we said in those days, yep. were the who the Eskimos were, as mm-hmm. we said in those days, but. Uh, the Métis, there was still some question about identity. Ethnogenesis was not a word commonly used in those days, but yeah. Harry Daniels, Smokey Breer, and others had made very compelling uh, uh, interventions to the Joint Committee on who they were, and I argued for it, and John Crachen phoned uh, his boss, Pierre Trudeau, and he got the okay, and then... Um, uh when it came time to discuss who would make the motion, uh, John Crachian said to me, well, Peter, I am the uh, Solicitor General. I am the government. I make the motion. And I said, well, John, I'm an Eskimo. I'm the only Eskimo on the committee. Yeah. You know, I'll make the motion, okay? Just just be gen- just be a little generous for a change. Yeah. So I, uh, I made the motion. It was agreed to by all... Yeah, three parties of the two houses, the bicameral houses, and uh, at at one point uh, the Alberta Premier, I think it was Peter Lougheed, and the uh, uh, Saskatchewan Premier killed it, and then it was reinstated during yeah. the uh, Premier's conferences on the Constitution. Right, but uh, that's how that started, and then when it when those things were done, I thought, you know what. I'm getting more help from the Liberals than I am from my own NDP. In fact, Ed Broadbent called me before I made the motion, uh, uh, telling me not to make the motion because the NDP would not get credit for it. Only I would. Well, and and I thought, crazy. you know what? And then the idea of Nuna would uh, the the. Tungavik Federation of Nuna would started negotiations with the federal government. Uh, Tom Malloy was a federal negotiator. He passed away now, bless his soul. Yeah. Um, and so a boundary had to be decided on between East and West, mm-hmm. and that was going to be a hard row to hold. Right. And uh, uh, so an agreement was made, uh, and and Mark Lalonde, Minister of Energy and Finance, etc., senior cabinet minister, John Monroe, who was the Indian Affairs Minister, uh, and some others were calling me and enticing me to cross the floor. And I was very undecided, you know, because it's a, it's a hard decision to right. make. Yeah. People wouldn't understand. Yeah. Uh, but uh, we finally came to an agreement on a process to form a boundary that would be eventually enacted to 
partitioned the Northwest Territories yeah. uh, into two territories. Mm -hmm. And that was the final straw. I, I crossed the floor because I had support for that. Yeah. And uh, so that 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 was the reasoning behind yeah. crossing the floor. When people when people uh, hear you say cross the floor, um, the way the House of Commons is situated. Uh, did you literally have to cross the floor, or, or well, I suppose that... it could be done, but no. What what happens is it's it's behind the scenes. You make the decision. Uh, the morning the news came out that I was crossing the floor, I was in my constituency office in the Cullery. I got a call, you know, at seven a.m. from Ed Broadbent. You know. Uh, I'm very unhappy with you, et cetera, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. Yeah. And I said, well, you know, you, you might have wanted to listen to me a little bit more instead of your inner circle, you know, sanctum yeah. sanctorum. And then two minutes later, literally, I got a call from Prime Minister Trudeau uh, welcoming me to the uh, Liberal Caucus. Pierre Trudeau. Pierre Trudeau, not Justin. Uh, and that was the, that was that. And then I went back to Ottawa, and I was assigned a seat on the Liberal side of the house. And uh, and I walked in. I barely remember walking in. I was yeah. shaking with fear. You know? <laughs> yeah. And uh, uh, I walked in, and I heard all this roaring and uh, and a very quiet on the other side. Yeah. And the people on the Liberal side were. Clapping and, yeah. and uh, all of a sudden, Pierre Trudeau was beside me, shaking my hand. Yeah, yeah. and uh, then I sat down, and I was a Liberal member of Parliament. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, what was your relationship like with Pierre Trudeau? Uh, pretty close. Uh, close. I mean, he was always accessible to me. Um, if if I uh, if I wanted something, he uh, he was there. He was uh, if he was available, he he would talk to me. And uh, we took a trip across the north from Inuvik to uh, northern Quebec. Uh, part of it camping, part of it visiting communities, and and uh, Justin was eleven, I think, at the time, yeah. or ten or eleven. He was on the trip. Yes. And so were the other two boys. Michelle is gone now. Yeah. And uh, so it was, it was, and, and even after we're, Pierre Trudeau and I were both out of politics, we, we'd phone each other every so often. Mm -hmm. and so essentially yeah. we remained uh, friends. We, yeah. Yeah. Uh, if we, if Nunavut wanted something, I, I had pretty full access to the prime minister's mm -hmm. office too. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Steve, and uh, there were a few things. Uh, that old yellow terminal building in Iqaluit uh, is one of the f little things. Okay. Uh, another thing was, uh, uh, I said to Pierre Trudeau at one time, I, uh, you know, the writing alignments in uh, the map uh, alignments in northern Quebec uh, means that the Inuit of Nunavik, uh, now Nunavik. Do not their vote does not matter one little bit because they're they you know the the whole of Nunavik population is smaller than Shefferville. Yeah, you know so they will always vote somebody from the south, but if you appointed a federal senator from northern Quebec, they'd at least have some federal representation. They wouldn't be a member of parliament, but it, but a senator is better than nothing. Right. So. On that advice, uh, eventually he appointed uh, Charlie Watt, yeah, who became senator for some thirty odd years. Right, and he he had been my first choice. Yeah, uh, there was another one. Uh, there were Mary Simon, now the Governor General, was a uh, under consideration. Uh, Tom uh, Markar Gordon, uh, bless his soul, was yeah. under consideration. Zebedee Nungak was under consideration. They were top players in the whole Makivik mm -hmm. uh, scheme of things, and uh, but uh, Trudeau himself made the final arbiter and and uh, mm -hmm. decided on uh, Charlie Watt. Ayaya songs are about our histories. Ayaya is an Inuit-owned firm that tells our stories in many languages across Canada. 
Ayaya are experts in publishing children's books, usually in syllabics, and they do large multi-language projects like the reports of the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls Commission. If you need help getting your stories into classrooms or homes in Cree, Inuktitut, or other Indigenous languages, check them out at ayaya.ca. That's A-Y-A-Y-A dot C-A. But you also had another uh, liberal senator, Inuk senator, yeah, Rankin Inlet. Willie Adams. He's uh, the first Enoch senator from Rankin Inlet. Was he there? Was he there before Charlie? Yes, he was. Okay, he was for many years. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Willie was an electrician. Yes, and uh, he still is. Uh, lives just south of Ottawa now. Uh, but anyway, apparently uh, there were there were back and forth between people like Peter Evnick, who was with the NWT government. Uh, Warren Allman, who was then Minister of Indian Affairs, and so forth. And they kind of de they decided on Willie Adams because Trudeau wanted to appoint an Enoch senator from the north somewhere. Yeah. And Willie was a very popular guy, electrician, family man. Likeable. And very likable. Uh, his English was a little funny. <laughs> Uh, people in a happy and a ranking, all right. You know, that, that sort of. <laughs> and. Uh, uh, apparently, Prime Minister Trudeau called him up and said, Willie, can you come down this week? I, I'm, I'm going to appoint you as senator. And Willie said, no, I'm wiring up a house right now. It'll have to be next week. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's just incredible how you can, you can recall these names so easily that, you know, you mentioned them that I had totally forgotten some of these guys, you know. that uh, You also wrote a book about uh, a few years back uh, about your life in general, mm -hmm. and also you also you, you mentioned that you're currently writing a book right now, and it's a work in progress. You want to talk a little bit about that, or the the first book uh, called "Teaching Eskimo How to Read." Uh, uh, the book is is a soft sell on my life. Mm -hmm. I mean, when I say soft sell, it's a soft version because the, these series of books were for college and uh, and uh, schools and so forth. So yeah, uh, and I was asked to be one of the people along with John Amawalik, Paul Kwasa, James Alvaluk mm -hmm. uh, to do a book. So Terry yeah. Rodon, professor from Laval University, and um, uh, people at Nunavut Siwunik Sabut, uh, Murray Angus, and now the Premier of uh, Nunavut, P.J. Akaro, and, and Thierry, uh, uh, and I sat down, I, I basically talked for three days, yeah. nonstop, and that's how that book came about. Mm -hmm. That's why it says Conversations with Peter. Yeah, yeah. It's in And so that was the, that version. The book I've been meaning to write for a long, long time, and I call it the shamanism and the art of parliamentary procedure, which is, which is a take on a, a book that used to be called Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance for right. lots of people. Yes, yes. And this one is a real tell-all. That is, there's no holding back. Mm -hmm. This is the real version. This is the commercial version. The real story. The the real story about Peter. About Peter and it, what went on. Yeah. Here and there, yeah. yeah, yeah. Some of it is good, some of it is bad. Yeah. Nowadays, a lot of movies are based on books, you know, and right. you know, th this is something I have a little bit in mind now. Uh, some, not, not because I'm, I'm, uh, uh, how do you say, Piusuriyok, Inuktitut Piusuriyok, conceited. Yeah. Uh, prideful it's not that it's just that i i it, this is a story worth telling and it includes many of the names that i've mentioned already in this interview and 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 many others that i haven't yet uh but this is this would be the real story uh, i think and it would be worth telling through the uh, video medium and so uh, that's what i'm working on and i hope to you know, have a draft uh, by, oh, I, I, w I, w I would think in about six, eight months. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we're... I've, I've started it. 
Yeah. It's coming. Uh, some days it flows, some days yeah. you have yeah. a, you, yeah. you're blanked. That's the challenge, I guess, of writing a book. Many people have asked me to continue writing it, uh, not, uh, not the least of which uh, Dennis Patterson, uh, Robert Eno, who I brought up north when he was a student of mine at Ottawa U. Other people said, look, this is important. You've got to get it down. So that yes, I, I am I am trying to work on it. The ICC, the Inuit Circumpolar Conference Organization, represents Inuit from several countries, including Canada, the yep. United States, yep. Greenland, and mm-hmm. Russia. What's the uh, what's the main purpose of the ICC, and how often? Where does it meet? Well, the Inuit Circumpolar Conference was a concept conceived by one Eben Hobson from what was then uh, Point Barrel on the North Slope of Alaska, yeah. uh, now called Udgivik, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, Eben Hobson was uh, uh, half Inuk, half white yeah. kind of a person, but he thought, uh, he called uh, people from... Uh, Greenland to Alaska to Point Barrow for the for very first meeting uh, to to say, look, we have rights. We have we have to assert our place in the world, and so and and the 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 more we are, the more people we are, the stronger we'll be. The premise behind the Inuit Circumpolar Conference, they've met more or less uh, annually. From then on, it's changed, as all organizations do. Um, uh, my first ICC meeting was in uh, Nuke, Greenland, and I chaired the resolutions committee for mm-hmm. that when I had just become an MP. Yeah, And uh, so it's an important organization. The more people you are, you know, Inuit number less than 200,000 mm-hmm. globally. Yeah. Like we're very, very few. Yeah, yeah. But we occupy a large geographic area. An important an, one, too. An important one in in a number of ways, yeah. strategically, militarily. Mm-hmm. Uh, many resources, both non-renewable and uh, renewable. The environment. Uh, hmm? The environment. The environment. Global it's warming. Green, yeah, yeah. It, 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 it's important in many ways. Yes. And the people that are living there are the stewards of that environment. Yeah. And they've lived there all their lives. They know how to live there. They enjoy it there. And they deserve to be, you know, compensated for keeping that environment as clean as possible. Yeah. And... uh so it's it's an important organization. During my time as an MP, it was really really difficult to get any Russian delegation. They weren't allowed to come, uh, but uh, but included Canada, the USA, Greenland, uh, the Sami were joined uh, joined. Sami from where? Sami from Norway. Well, so they're part of it now. Yeah, they have been for a long long time. Oh, I didn't know that. Uh, uh, at, at least maybe ex officio, I'm not yeah. sure, but they they wanted to join. There was resistance from some quarters of the Inuit uh, delegation uh, mm-hmm. because they said, oh, they're white, they're not Eskimo, yeah. 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 Uh, which is the wrong approach, I thought. Uh, so, yeah, it's, uh, and now the Yupik, I think, are becoming part of it. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, we've had, there have been Siberian delegate, but I'm not sure whether they're still uh, there's. I was in Nome recently uh, mm-hmm. a month, a couple months ago, Nome, Alaska, and and uh, there were by by boat. There was back and forth between Nome and Siberia, the Siberian Inuit, and their relatives to each other. Oh, really? Yeah, but yeah. the Americans and the Russians. Yeah, they would go to uh, Diomedes and little Diomedes Islands right yeah. in the center of the street and and uh, meet up there or go across to each other's side before the Russian um, mm-hmm. uh, Soviet regime and the American regime hating each other yeah. stopped any traffic between those people and, and their, uh, their, their uh, relatives to each other. Yeah. Yeah. It should be noted for our listeners that Canada, USA, Greenland, and Russia 
have all Inuit people living in mm -hmm. all those countries. And and numbering less than 200,000 total. Right, yeah. Which is pretty amazing if you yeah, think of it. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> and very resilient and strong and ingenious and, you know, uh, to live it, in that part of the world, you know, you have to be really yeah. strong in many ways, right? In the last 30 years, though, there have been growing pains. Yeah. And it's, uh, maybe that's a conversation for another day. Right, yeah. Well, we're getting close to the end of this podcast, uh, Peter. I just wanted to ask you a couple more questions. Okay. Uh, you also did some work with the First Nations people in northern Ontario. What stands out the most about your period, that period of time in your life? Extremely educational yeah. for me personally. Uh, difficult in some ways to see what I was seeing and very gratifying because of uh, how I was treated. Uh, I worked with um, Anishinaabe Ojibwe people from Lac La Croix, for instance, and, and um, Northern Ontario, Ottawa, Piscat, uh, Casabonica. I was a negotiator on land-related matters for the Ontario government for close to 20 years. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you're given files. There's some 150-plus claims going on. Uh, mostly land-related only, uh, mm -hmm. only one comprehensive claim, I think, involving the Algonquin uh, north of Ottawa, you know, that yeah, huge yeah. area. Uh, I worked on land-related matters only, and usually related to treaty obligations that were not met at the time of mm -hmm. treaty. Yeah. There was a formula in treaties, you know, where a ban, they were called bans, would Community. be allotted... Uh, this size of land based on the numbers of people they had in the band, mm -hmm. which amounted to um, the, the easy equation is 20, uh, 128 acres per person, man, woman, and child. Mm -hmm. That's the easy way to say it. Yeah. Uh, in Treaty 9, both Treaty 9 areas and uh, uh, the other uh, uh, TLE, we call them TLE, Treaty Land Entitlement Claims. Right. And uh, so going into communities like Picanjicum was heartbreaking. And then going into other communities like uh, the Fox Lake Cree, uh, uh, Chaplow Cree, mm -hmm. rich, you know, beautiful houses, roads well-maintained, etc. And then you go down the road a few kilometers and, uh, and the Chaplow Ojibwe, you know, uh, uh, you know, broken down houses and, yeah. you know, boarded up windows. Picanjicum was just absolutely heartbreaking to see, you know. I've seen a lot in my life, but yeah. I, I did not expect to see conditions from 50, 60 years ago in the yeah. community. Yeah. Um, the the uh, Ottawa Piscot uh, were moved uh, there uh, on flood-prone lands, even right. though they tried to tell the federal agent of the day, uh, we can't move here, we're going to get flooded every year, which they do. Mm -hmm. And so my job was to try and find them land uh, and work with them on lands upriver a little bit on higher ground. And and um, they were moved for religious reasons uh, from uh, Albany. Uh, because of Anglican and Roman Catholic animosity that had developed yeah. denominationally, systematically uh, between people, mm -hmm. relatives, uh, because on religious grounds. So yeah. the federal government moved them for those reasons. Uh, this is education that's not taught in schools, right. you know, yeah. and it should be. Yeah. That that's that's a tiny scratch yeah. of what we saw, what we heard, what. Uh, uh, mm -hmm. what it was like to work with Northern Ontario, uh, in some cases, Western Ontario uh, communities. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The word uh, reconciliation has been the buzzword recently in our country. <laughs> what is your view on this, and what do you think we have to do to achieve reconciliation? What are we reconciling exactly? That's my question, because... Reconciliation means that at some point in the past, things were equal, things were good, things were uh, 
you know, we were there, there was parody. Yeah. Uh, there was no doctrine of discovery. You know, although it was never legally enacted in Canada, it still affected us because it was uh, enacted in the States legally. Uh, and a 1493 archaic, anarchic uh, doctrine that uh, has no place in the modern world, but it was carried into the 19th century and in, even into the 20th century where uh, it wasn't until 1960 that we were able to vote in and participate mm -hmm. in politics in Canada. Yeah. Uh, the, the Indian Act forbade... Uh, uh, legal representation for indigenous people prior to the late 1950s. Mm -hmm. uh, you couldn't have collateral and go to a bank. So you, uh, they made it so that indigenous people could not get affluent in any way. Uh, so they kept them down. Uh, never mind the fact that they put them on reserves. Mm -hmm. Which still exists today. So what are we reconciling? Are we reconciling a situation that Mean that there was parity at one time in our history, yeah. so I don't. I I think it's the wrong word. It probably is the wrong word. Yeah, I think it's the yeah. wrong word. Um, uh, if we mean reconciling a despair, a, a parity that was never there, and we reconcile reconcile to the point where there is parity in our societies, and these are different societies. Yeah, you know the. The European came to Canada and the U.S. with uh, a perfunctory sense of, with a perfunctory superiority complex. Mm -hmm. They were superior in every way, except maybe hunting and, and some ways. That, yeah. uh, but they had power. They had authority. I, I'm, I have trouble with the word reconciliation because of that. Right. I would say, let's make a new word, mm -hmm. pro-conciliation. Yeah. Let's go work towards a conciliatory relationship where we have parity, we have equal authority, we're at a table with uh, with some equality, equal representation, equal yeah. representation, and uh, so uh, the, that word troubles me somewhat, and I think uh, I think it's misunderstood uh, by people. Uh, to mean something that it doesn't really mean semantically right. by definition. Yeah. Uh, let's understand what the word means, and then uh, I would suggest pro-conciliation as a new word yeah. and uh, uh, work, towards, uh, work towards a relationship that is equal. Equal, yeah. With parity. You are now retired and enjoying a more stress-free lifestyle. What do you enjoy doing now in your time? Well, this summer I went, uh, I had a summer gig this summer. Uh, I went on a Norwegian ship called the MS Fritzhoff Nansen, an expedition cruise ship as a guest lecturer. Yeah. Uh, went on ship uh, from Reykjavik, Iceland, uh, through parts of Greenland, oh. landed in Pond Inlet, uh, Joe Haven, Cambridge Bay, uh, and on around uh, uh, North Slope down to Nome, Alaska, yeah. through the Northwest Passage right. uh, for 28 days. So that, that, was, a nice, that yeah. was a nice summer gig. Yeah, that's uh, good. I guess lecture now and again at some universities and schools. Yeah. Uh, somehow my book got out into the little town I'm in now, Hawkesbury, mm -hmm. and the school board there is apparently asking me to come and speak at the school. Okay. Uh, as I, as we mentioned, I'm working on this book. Uh, yeah. Uh, I was working on a movie uh, with a uh, with a partner from the states uh, about my grandfather Peter Foykin, mm -hmm. uh, who was uh, there was a recent book that came out about him published in 19, 2023. Yeah. Uh, wanderlust uh, about his life because yeah, yeah. Uh, he he was an interesting man in his own in his own right an explorer and wrote explorer, some thirty yeah, books and yeah. uh, so I'm I'm busy enough I, mm -hmm. I like my days off I yeah. I, I like sleeping in mm -hmm. it took a while to sleep to be able to sleep in yeah, when you retire yeah. generally speaking I enjoy life I'm I'm close to family and. Uh, I, I really, really liked that summer gig I had. You know, yeah. the, the ship 
uh, thing, but I also enjoy giving uh, presentations and lectures and yeah. and the odd panel discussion here and there mm -hmm. if they yeah. come around. Roots and Hoots, being on Roots and Hoots? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> We've been talking to, uh, well, I've been talking to Peter Hitinuar Froiken, uh, originally from Rankin Inlet, and uh, I want to thank you, Peter, for joining me today on behalf of Legacy Hope Foundation. Thank you, and uh, Roots and Hoots. Thank you very much, Gordon. It's yeah. been a pleasure. Yeah, it has. Roots and Hoots is a podcast project produced by the Legacy of Hope Foundation. For this episode's show notes, please visit the podcast episode description. And for more information about the work we do at the Legacy of Hope Foundation, please visit legacyofhope.ca. Thank you.